Good morning, church. The first part of Scripture comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And the second piece of Scripture comes from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through, f- <coughs> 1 through 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let the people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with the compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah, to this, Jonah seemed very wrong, and he became angry. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Did he say, blessed are the cheesemakers? There is a scene in a movie called Monty Python and the Life of Brian in which the Sermon on the Mount is recounted. And I thought, man, I should use that video clip to start this sermon. So I went and reviewed it and discovered it would have been wildly inappropriate to do so. (laughs) So I I didn't. Uh, today we are concluding a sermon series called Be the Change. And the underlying premise behind this series is that, that our society is facing some significant technical challenges. I mean, real challenges that we are facing together. And it seems like we're not, we're not really figuring these challenges out in part because the volume of rhetoric in our society and anger in our society has been turned up so high that we can't even listen to each other anymore. And so we've been discussing over the last few weeks how the church of Jesus Christ could be the change. How we could bring about civility to our society again. And so it is fitting that we conclude this series with Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Now, First thing we got to know about peacemaking is this. Peacemaking is not an easy endeavor. Peacemaking is hard to do. Just ask Jonah. Jonah's story is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It, it's, it is one of the best stories in the Bible. Many of us are culturally familiar with it. God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to be a peacemaker between God and the people of Nineveh. And Jonah, of course, says, nope. 
And not only does he say, I'm, I'm not going to Nineveh, he actively goes in the opposite direction, gets on a boat, starts going west. Nineveh's to the east. And as he goes along his journey, you, you probably know this, a big, big boat, multiple levels of the boat. The Bible tells us that. A lot of diversity on the boat because when the boat gets in trouble, the people start uh, praying to their respective gods. So big, big boat and it, it gets in trouble and they discover that Jonah is the reason they're in trouble and so they rather unceremoniously throw him overboard. <laughs> and uh, Jonah gets gets swallowed by a whale. Now, just a quick time out here. Uh, Every time I tell this story, inevitably, somebody comes up to me after worship and says, you know, Pastor, uh, the Bible says it was a big fish, not a whale. And then we get to have this conversation about whether or not 2,700 years ago the people of the ancient Near East possessed the biological understanding to differentiate on taxonomic level between a really, really big fish and a whale. And by the end of that conversation, normally the person with whom I am in, in, in talks says, you know, I really didn't care that much. I'm going to go get a bagel. <laughs> so Jonah, Jonah gets swallowed by this whale and... Uh, and he's um, convinced of his, his death, but but he doesn't die. And three days later, he gets thrown up on the on the ground. It's it's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. I wonder if you've ever thought about it this way: that uh, Jonah's on a big, diverse ship with people from all over the world. All the world's in trouble, and so they sacrifice one guy who spends three days under the surface. And three days later, he's walking around on the ground again. Sound familiar to anybody? There are a lot of pastors, a lot of theologians who suggest that the story of Jonah is actually a premonition of what's going to take place in the Christ event. But I wonder, could, could you put yourself in Jonah's shoes for just a minute? Right? There you are. God has a call on your life. You're not happy about that call, so you run away from that call. And all of a sudden, you find yourself thrown overboard, certain death. I mean, absolute, there's, there's no hope. You're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. There's no hope. And then the end comes. You get swallowed by a whale. You think, this is it. And you find yourself in the middle of the whale, and it smells really bad, and you're praying for death because it stinks in here. And then you get thrown up on shore. Think about what that must have felt like. I mean, really, you'd have to take a shower, right? You'd want to do that. But otherwise, you have just been saved in a miraculous way. Jonah was saved in a miraculous way by God's grace. But he still doesn't really want to go and fulfill God's call on his life. He does. Ultimately, Jonah does. He goes to Nineveh. He goes reluctantly. He proclaims God's message to the Ninevites, and an amazing thing happens. The people of Nineveh listen to him, and they change their ways, and God saves them. And after the people of God, after God saves the people of Nineveh, rather, uh, we read in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, this was very displeasing to Jonah that the people got saved. It was very displeasing to Jonah that God showed grace to them. And this is my own translation of what comes next. Jonah says to God, Lord, I told you this is what would happen. You have grace. You avoid anger. I knew you wouldn't. I knew you'd save these jerks. In verse 3, Jonah asked God to kill him. 
Just kill me now. If you're going to save these people, just kill me now. Prophets did that a lot. Here's the irony. Jonah was alive because of God's miraculous act of grace in his life. But when God called him to bring peace and grace to others, Jonah didn't want to do it. And so here's the question for us, right? Why didn't Jonah want the Ninevites to experience salvation? Why did Jonah hate the Ninevites so much? Well, there's a good reason. So a thousand years before Jesus is born, the kingdom of Israel is united by King David. He unites all the tribes. He rules for about 40 years. Then his son Solomon comes to the throne, rules for 60 years. And then about 900 years before Jesus is born, Solomon dies and the kingdom's divided into the northern kingdom called Israel, which has 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah, which has only two tribes, Levi and Judah. Everything goes hunky-dory for a couple hundred years until in the year 721 B.C., a guy by the name of Sargon II attacks the northern kingdom, the big one, the ten tribes. Sargon II attacks the northern kingdom of Israel and he ultimately destroys the northern kingdom. It's called the diaspora. The people he doesn't kill and he kills a lot of them. The people he doesn't kill, he sends to the corners of his empire so as to divide them in such a way that they would never rise to conquer the Assyrian empire. It was the dark, one of the darkest days in Israel's history. In fact, from that moment forward, Israel would never exist in that same way again. You ask, what does this have to do with the story of Jonah? Well, the answer is that Sargon II's hometown, the capital of the Assyrian Empire that destroyed the nation of Israel forever, the capital city was a city called Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go and bring peace to Nineveh. He didn't. He wanted them to die. He wanted them punished. He had seen the evil and the destruction and the death they caused. The most apt analogy I can come up with to try and help us understand what was happening inside Jonah is to think about what it would have been like for God to send a Jewish prophet to Nazi Germany in 1941 and tell them, I want you to try and save the Third Reich. Turns out Jonah had a good reason for his reluctance. But God's heart was bigger. Jonah had good reasons for not wanting to bring peace to those who had declared war. But in the end, the one who was saved by grace found no alternative but to offer grace to others. I think it may be fair to say that there are some Christians in the world who can sometimes feel like Jonah did. Saved by grace but unwilling to offer it to others. We can revel in our self-righteousness. When we come across those who have hurt us and who have offended us, we revel in our self-righteousness and the truth that God is going to get them. Saved by grace but unwilling to offer it. The reason I think there are some Christians in the world who act that way is because sometimes I act that way. It can be something silly too. Somebody cuts me off on the highway, and inside, I'm not, I'm a little afraid to admit it, but inside there's a little part of me that's like, don't you want to go to heaven? 
Every once in a while, here, even here, even in the church, even in the church, sometimes especially in the church, I preach my 16th sermon that day, and somebody comes up to me after the sermon and says, oh, Pastor, you know it was a big fish, not a whale. And most of the time, most of the time, I want to I say, I see where you're coming from, but every once in a while, there's a little part of me that says, Jesus is going to get you. It's amazing to me, it's amazing to me how quickly Rob's heart can go from peacemaker to warmonger. It can happen just like that. I was on the third of my four tours in the Middle East when I served as an officer in the Air Force. Uh, stationed about 40 miles northwest of Baghdad. Now, I was flying a really cool new plane. It wasn't a new plane, but it was a new weapon system. It had a ground-penetrating radar, and it was, it was cool. Now, we got, these, uh, we got these intelligence reports every day before we would go flying, and one of the things that was interesting about the base where we were, uh, people called it Mortar Town, because people, uh, people outside the base would launch mortars, which are big kind of bombs. They just throw bombs at you. And I asked the intelligence people who, these, these women and men are sharp. I mean, they're sharp folks. And I said, why? We're so good at this. Why can't we figure out who it is that keeps lobbing these, these mortars at us? And the intelligence officer said, well, the challenge is this. For 23 hours and 58 minutes out of the day, somebody could be a peaceful farmer. And then for two minutes a day, they can be a terrorist. That stuck with me. How quickly my heart can go from being that of a peacemaker to being that of a warmonger. I can spend 23 hours a day working for peace, and then there's a moment where my heart feels itself at war again. I wonder, does that ever happen to you? In moments when my heart threatens to make war, there are some things I need to remember, like I'm not called to be a peacemaker because others have earned peace. Sometimes they're actively looking for war. And I'm not called to be a peacemaker because I always feel like making peace. (laughs) I don't. Nevertheless, I am called to be a peacemaker, and so are you, because we have been redeemed by a Father who longs for peace. We have been shown peace and grace, and so we must, therefore, offer it to others. This week, about a hundred people in our congregation came together. Uh, We had... An interesting exercise this Monday night in, in civility and peace. And a hundred people came together from differing political opinions and we sat them at tables with people who disagreed with them. And we had dinner and conversations and at no point did a brawl break out. It was awesome, right? And one of the things that we did was we encouraged people rather than to talk so much about what they believed is instead to talk about why they believed it. What part of your story compels me to to hold this opinion because I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but none of us were born with the opinions we hold. There's some point in our story where those opinions began to coalesce. And so it was helpful for us not simply to understand what someone believed, but why they believed it. And as we heard one another's stories, some amazingly interesting things started to happen. 
It was a really cool experience, and I just wanted to share a couple of reflections from folks who participated with it. So if you turn your attention to the screen, please. So going into this experience, I really didn't know what to expect. And I think most of us probably were in that same position. And so for me, what was the most helpful was the question that was asked, um, which was for everybody to tell about, to talk about their background and their sort of family history and their upbringing and how that informed um, their position on the topic that we were discussing. And the thing that really surprised me, at least at my table, was that for the majority of us, the position that we hold was not necessarily the one that we were brought up with. Um, and, and, and what I think is so fascinating and what was so surprising to me about that is because when we live in such a polarized society, we tend to think of the people who disagree with us as, um, oh, well, that's just the way they were brought up. Or, you know, that's, somebody told them that and they never questioned it. Or um, they don't have the life experience that I have to inform uh, their position. And I found the opposite to be true. And the other thing that, that I found to be so <laughs> great as I, as I sat there was how uh, little distance there was between so many of us in our position that, you know, we tend to think of as either A or B. And there really is so much area in between. And it drove home for me the importance of uh, connecting um, to people in person and not just relying on social media or texting or any, you know, any of those forms of of uh, communication that we feel unite us, but at the same time, they really isolate us. And so it really drove home for me the importance of connecting and um, having conversations like this in order to really have a, a flourishing society. I thought it was wonderful. I would do it again in a heartbeat. You know, I was a little apprehensive as I was preparing to, to enter that conversation. Uh, but one of the questions that was asked early on is was to explain your background and, and kind of how you were raised and, and, and what your experiences were. Um, and it quickly dawned on me that, that our life experiences is what defines our our thoughts and our, our principles and our ideas about different subjects. And by being able to understand that about myself and then view that in another person, it helps me to see that the person is, is not uninformed or uneducated or, you know, just being belligerent for the sake of being belligerent. They're, they're literally just speaking about their life experiences. Um, and, and we all have those and all of our, all of us go through life a little bit differently. Um, so being able to identify that was very helpful to understand, you know, it's not about the subject per se as much as it is about just understanding that's another person that, that has their views for a reason. Um, and it was really exciting for me to, to hear some opposing views on it, um, to understand that, you know, why they felt the way that they felt and, and not trying to persuade them to my way of thinking, but just to listen and experience another person's point of view. Um, I, I just thought it was a very, very beneficial meal, uh, a wonderful experience, so much more, um, so much less stressful than what I was anticipating that it would be. So here's the takeaway. We can do this. I know 
I know they're yelling at each other out there. But we can do this. We can help the world make peace. We can do that. If we seek to understand one another's stories, not just what we believe, but why we believe it, we can be voices of peace in the world. I heard one of the reflections that one of the participants at this exercise shared is he said, you know, when you turn down all the noise and we just sat together, we discovered that we weren't that far apart. I'm not suggesting that every issue is going to magically disappear if we resolve to engage in civility with one another. But what I do believe is that the issues we face will feel less daunting when God's people recognize God's call on our lives to be peacemakers in the world. We've discussed a formula over the last several weeks. We've discussed a formula about how how we participate in this process of restoring civility to our society. And essentially, it it breaks down to three components. The first, the the bedrock, is the bedrock of, of humility. The first three Beatitudes lead us towards humility. We talk in the first one about the poverty of spirit that we have when we recognize our own sin. And that poverty, the brokenness of our spirit, leads us to mourn. And Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. After we have recognized the poverty of our own spirit and mourned it, it leads us to inhabiting a place of meekness. We could call it humility. Another way to think about the bedrock, the first step of, of peacemaking civility, is for all of us to recognize That if we really want to be the change that God is dreaming to see in the world, we first must understand that we have been part of the problem. All of us. The first step is humility. The second... The second step is the call of God on our lives to be different. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled... And what we talked about last week was that righteousness isn't isn't simply about being right on an issue. And what we see time and time again from Jesus is that righteousness also involves being reconciled to God and the people around us. It's not just being right on the issue. The issue says don't murder. Jesus said, I'll tell you to go further than that. Don't just avoid the end result of hate, which is the destruction of the other, or murder. I want you to avoid the very beginning of hate, he says to us. Don't even be angry with each other. Time after time after time, in the greatest statement on ethics in the history of the world, Jesus calls us not simply to be right, but to be reconciled. We can't be righteous if we routinely sit in enmity with those around us. A final note about that idea. The clarion call, the voice of Jesus Christ to Christ's own church in Scripture time after time after time is a voice that calls us to unity. He says, a new command I give unto you, love one another just as I have loved you. He says, by this all the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. In his final words, as a free man before he goes to die for us on the cross. In John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer, the last words Jesus speaks as a free man. They are a prayer for you and me. And what Jesus says is, Father, I pray that they would be one 
just as you and I are one. The call of Jesus to the life of the church is a call towards unity. And so, so, if the voices I choose to listen to in my life are calling me towards war rather than peace, if the voices I choose to listen to in my life are causing me to choose division over unity, if my MSNBC or my Fox, what? If my talk radio or my NPR or my Sesame Street or whatever is moving me towards division rather than unity, war towards peace, then I have to ask myself, is it time for me to start listening to a new voice? Oh, we can do this. Step one is humility. Recognizing we've been part of the problem. Step two is choosing to forge a new path. Righteousness, not simply by being right about an issue, but by seeking reconciliation, true connection with the people around us. And step three. Step three is to recognize that part of our identity as Christians is the call of God upon all, all, who would follow Him to be peacemakers. Which means we don't give up just because the volume around us got turned up loud and instead we stand committed to the truth that Christ came for all the world, that God loves all the world. God loves the Israelites and the Ninevites. God loves the Republicans and the Democrats and the the Green Party and the Tea Party and the Green Tea Party. And I just made that last one up. There is something greater than nationality or political party or issues. There is something greater which unites us. All of us, like Jonah, we are united by a tragic event in our past. Jonah's tragedy was political defeat and battlefield loss. My tragedy is that another had to give his life for mine. The tragedy of my past and yours is that another had to give his life for ours. And the one who sacrificed for you and me calls us to the work of peace and unity. How in the world could we refuse? Our destiny. God's dream is that all the world be reconciled to God and to one another. That's what our Father longs for in His heart. That all flesh would become children of God. And Jesus said, when we make peace, that's exactly what we are. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called children of God. I want to conclude with a moment of personal privilege and say thank you. The series has been designed to try and address one of the biggest challenges that face our society, and yes, all of us are culpable, and what that means is that at a certain point during the series, I hope all of us have been a little bit uncomfortable. I know that I have. But my friends, I don't see a greater challenge facing our society than this. And the great news the wonderful hope 
is what they need out there? We have in here. And now all we got to do is go give it to them. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Would you pray with me? Father, I confess that there are moments in my life I've felt like Jonah. You've asked me to do something and I've discovered that I didn't think that the people around me in that moment or that instant or that scenario deserved your grace. Who am I, O oh God? I have been saved by your grace. We have been saved by your grace and you now call your church to go forth and demonstrate unity and peace and love to this world Help us, God. Help us be light in darkness. Hope and despair. Help us bring peace to discord. Not only so that our society will take better steps, but so that you will be glorified. We ask for your help. We can't do this on our own. Help us to find hearts of peace. Help us to find joy in one another's stories. Help us to be humble. To seek reconciliation. And to be your children. Which is to make peace. In the name and to the glory of Christ Jesus we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.